Welcome to Simply Secure, a Logicalis Insights podcast. Each episode, we present and simplify a different security topic. If you're confused by the complexity and amount of security technologies available, then this is your podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Cisco. Now, please welcome your host, Ron Temsky, Vice President of Cybersecurity, Network, and Workplace Solutions for Logicalis. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Simply Secure, a Logicalis podcast. Since this is our first episode, I want to give you a little background on uh, the cast and crew of this podcast and why we created it. So my name is Ron Temsky, and I'm the Vice President of Cybersecurity for Logicalis. Uh, We've been talking about doing this podcast for a while because I saw a deficiency in the market just through my own podcast listening. So there are a lot of podcasts that cover security in excruciating depth. And so if you're a security professional, that market is pretty well covered. I'm not sure we would add a whole lot to that. On the other end of the spectrum, there are quite a few podcasts that really cover the entertainment or social aspects of security, talking about the latest hacks, you know, maybe some nice dramatizations, and felt that was pretty covered as well. But where we saw a gap was that middle ground. And we run into a lot of people just in our day-to-day lives as professionals who have been tasked with owning security for their organization but don't come from a security background, or maybe just someone who's interested in it but has a different career uh, path. You're our audience for this podcast. That's what we want to attract. We want to help you understand complex security requirements in very layman's terms. And so each episode of this podcast will dissect a security topic, and our goal is to really make it simple, hence the name of the podcast, Simply Secure. So your feedback will help us measure whether we're doing that successfully, and will also help us with topics, areas of interest that you'd like to cover on uh, future episodes. You can always reach us at simplysecure at us.logicalis.com. Simply secure is one word, and Logicalis is spelled L-O-G-I-C-A-L-I-S. We'd love to have your feedback. So as I mentioned, our motivation is really to create a podcast that simplifies security for all of you. And our first priority in doing that is to make this an educational, informative podcast. So again, your feedback is critical to ensure we do that. This is our first episode, so I'm sure there'll be some hiccups, uh, but we'll get better over time. And again, your feedback is essential to make that happen. So just a little bit of background on me, since this is the first episode, I actually started Uh, many years ago uh, in music as my first passion where I started in school, switched to nuclear engineering because somehow that transition uh, made sense, and then ultimately moved into cybersecurity uh, as my passion. I'm sure somewhat influenced by the fact that while I was in graduate school for nuclear engineering, the Chernobyl accident, as well as the uh, cold fusion, which now appears to be the cold fusion hoax, uh, all happened. So there was a lot of interesting things at that time that uh, ultimately moved me over to focus in security. And it's really something I've been passionate about even before I made it a career. Uh, I just find the technology fascinating. I find the concepts fascinating. And we're all pretty passionate on my team. You know, we, we joke around. In fact, uh, 
if you ever uh, happen to see me present live, I'll frequently make a joke about being, you know, the cyber James Bond. Uh, it falls apart pretty quickly because I'm neither uh, British, muscular, nor good looking. But nonetheless, we all take our role in protecting our customers and to a much lesser extent, protecting the world from, from criminals very seriously. It really is a calling for all of us. And so we hope um, that will come through in the podcast. So normally, as I mentioned on each episode, we'll take a single topic in security and we'll dissect it in layman's terms to help you understand not just the technology or, or the compliance or regulatory measure, but how does it apply in, in real world terms? Again, really working hard to avoid uh, acronyms and mumbo jumbo. Well, what's a rule if you don't spend your first podcast in breaking that rule? So we're recording this first episode in April 2020, where the entire world is essentially in a shutdown over the COVID-19 pandemic. And we felt, how can we have our first episode in this environment and not talk about security for remote workers as most of the world has or is trying to figure out how to work remotely? So we're going to violate uh, our own rule on the very first episode and talk in a wider topic of remote security, which encompasses many technologies. But don't worry, a lot of the topics we talk about in this episode, we're going to come back to in a subsequent uh, podcast and cover them in greater detail. So let's set the stage a little bit for what's driving this beyond the obvious of people having to work at home. One of the other factors that's occurring in the market is attackers leveraging the human vulnerability to this pandemic. And I don't mean vulnerability in, in catching it and becoming ill. I mean our innate vulnerability in a quest for knowledge of more information, sometimes in our quest for supplies like masks or toilet paper, and they're preying on that human weakness. And so we see subject matter lines and phishing emails that are somehow tied to the you know to the virus whether it's advertisements that you know we have n95 masks in stock or here's for the latest cure the government doesn't want you to know right preying on that and we're seeing statistics that that back this up i'll share just a couple in March of this year, March 2020, there was a 127% increase in RDP, which is the remote desktop protocol on the internet. Pretty easy to understand. People working remotely, creating remote desktop sessions, perhaps back to their work PC, perhaps to a VDI farm, those are easily exploited. And in fact, according to a BitSight report, home networks are three and a half times more likely to be infected with malware than a corporate network. So this move to home has not only created logistical challenges, it's made us more vulnerable. And the last statistic I'll share comes from the FBI Cyber Division, which reported just on April 16th of 2020 that they were receiving between three and 4,000 cybersecurity complaints a day. Contrast that to a typical rate of 1,000 per day just a month earlier. So a massive spike in that. And as I mentioned, we're seeing email headers. We're even seeing SMS attacks, which use your text messaging to try to get you to uh, click on a malicious link. As an example, I'll just read to you one um, that happened over in UK, a real one that was sent out to thousands and thousands of people that says, UK Gov has issued a payment of 458 uh, British pounds to all residents as part of its promise to battle COVID-19. Tap here to apply. And it's a official looking link. It has UK and COVID-19 in, in the title. The ultimate domain is webredirect.org, but 
people are clicking on it, right, and getting scammed. So that's what we're going to cover today is what are some of the challenges around working remotely, but more importantly, how can we help you protect yourself against it? So joining me today are two of my team members at Logicalis, Naladri Dutta and Corey Kramer, and I'll let them each introduce themselves. Corey? Hey, thanks, Ron. My name is Corey Kramer. Uh, I'm a principal architect here at Logicalis. I've been in the industry for about 20 years, and I pretty much started off, you know, like a PC geek uh, growing up. And I, I've, I've worked my way in through, um, you know, hacking <laughs> a little bit at home when I had a lot more free time at my hands. I actually took down a, a sizable uh, that I, if you want to talk about you know, some battle stories here, Ron. I, I took down a whole huge sector of uh, my cable modem since it's a shared uh, uh, area. I, I handed out bad IP addresses to the rest of the, the home subscribers and I was blacklisted. Um, so that that was kind of my my claim to fame. They were looking to get a hold of me, but um, that, that kind of sparked my passion for security and how should I help them enable security. Um, but I've been, you know, doing this for... 20 years, but I would say the last few years, cybersecurity has really come to a, a forefront. Um, I, I've moved from being a traditional network engineer to being a, a security-focused engineer as well. So thanks for having me. Hi, my name is Niladri. I am one of the principal architects in the security practice at Logicalis, based out of the uh, metro Chicago area. And um, been in the industry since about early 90s, so I've kind of stopped counting at this point in time. But um, the the interesting thing is that, well, I never really thought of security in the sense I think of security back then, because my initial foray into computing was through computer science and, you know, Unix systems, um, Gator boxes, Macs, and blah, 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 right? And uh, I, I happened to run afoul of... Uh, of, of lab admins at my university when I, I happened to start pointing out uh, that uh, there were some security vulnerabilities. Apparently, I was pen testing them without really realizing it. So th that didn't quite turn out very well, but not too bad either. So um, since then, um, I uh, have been working uh, you know, in the customer space as a part of a as part of an IT team, but as a generalist. So um, the, the the interesting thing is that uh, one day I would uh, work on servers, one day I would work on, you know, firewalls uh, or antivirus, and uh, um, which was a great exposure for me, and it kind of got me kind of interested. And um, then I switched over to a public company that I had to abide by Sarbanes Oxley. And got a, a a dose of something I had never been exposed to, which was security as part of a program to manage risk in an organization. Right. So, um, point being, how do the tools tie in with the rest of the of the company to to uh, make sure that the entire organization is safe? So, uh, ever since then, it's it's really uh, you know. Uh, pointed me in the direction of security. I've kind of wanted to know more and more and more. And the Snowden incident in 2013 kind of did it for me. And uh, and uh, Ron was gracious enough to um, ask me to uh, join the practice a few years back. So my background, as you can tell, is uh, a lot of, you know, some programming, Unix, as well as data center all over the place, networking, and also security. So uh, I hope to bring uh, some different perspectives to the podcast.
thanks, guys. And I uh, didn't realize I had a couple of renegades on my team. We're going to do more podcasts just so I can learn your little secrets. So, uh, so let's dive right in and let's talk about what some of the risks and challenges that you see working remotely uh, from a security perspective. Naladri, let's start with you. Sure. Thanks, Ron. There are a couple that um, I've been hearing about and reading about. Um, you know, one is uh, essentially all the malware and phishing campaigns out there. Ron, uh, you know, mentioned those at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, those are a challenge because a lot of employees aren't used to working from home. And let's face it. This is a stressful time for all of us, right? So uh, sometimes that security awareness trigger doesn't always come into play when you, when folks are working remotely uh, because everybody needs to get work done. And as a result, people do tend to click on more things than they typically may not have. So that's that's one challenge, right? How do you how do you deal with that? The other piece is uh, a, a lot of a lot of us are used to having laptops. And uh, we work from home anywhere, right? But a lot of employees don't. So now they're facing a unique situation where they're having to use their personal computer to access company resources uh, going forward. Now, that creates a challenge because how do you make sure that you have the same level of protections and controls as you did with the company asset or something close to but with an employee's personal device, right? That's, that is a definite challenge. And the other piece uh, is, you know, there's a lot of spear phishing happening right now. And what would happen when we would get an odd email when we were sitting in the office, right? We would get an odd email and, and we would pop up and go, hey, Corey, did you see this email from Ron? And Corey would say, you know what? Uh, it says uh, it says this and this. So there was a way to interact and figure out. Okay, is this is this real? Is this not? But that isn't happening anymore. We are sitting in our own extremely large cubicles, right? So that makes it very difficult as well. So how do you how do you deal with spear phishing? How do you deal with this lack of being able to interact very quickly to figure things out? And also. When our employees are at home and working, there's really no way for, to ensure that whatever websites they're visiting don't have some, something malicious in them, right? So those are some challenges that I can think of top of my head. Yeah, and to piggyback on what you were saying, Aladri, you know, I, I think that you know, when we're talking about phishing and, and just to maybe a little closely define spear phishing, you know, phishing in general I would say is a social engineering technique to get someone to click on a malicious link, uh, whereas spear phishing is a very targeted uh, and sophisticated uh, mechanism where, you know, they oftentimes I see they try to capture a company's email format uh, or send it from an authority figure to make it look authentic to trick you into clicking on links here. And, And really the impact that you see, you know, you either have phishing for credentials where they will eventually steal your credentials or your login information, uh, or they could use phishing for distributing malware uh, to your to your workstation um, so it could spread. So, you know, de- definitely I see phishing as a, a big campaign going on right now. Uh, another thing too is where does your data actually reside? So when folks are connecting to their applications, to their resources, you know, does it exist on premise in a data center? Does it exist somewhere out in the cloud? Uh, I think in general, the way that you protect your on-prem network is different from how you protect 
things that reside out in the cloud. And really, people don't have a good understanding right now of where does their data actually reside and how do they secure it. Thanks, Corey. And uh, maybe one more aspect, if you don't mind, you could touch on with a lot of workers uh, working remotely, particularly if they're connecting back to data that does sit in their corporate data center. So piggybacking on your thought, they're leveraging VPN technology. But that same technology potentially now creates a numerous number, equal to the number of employees using it, backdoors into that data center. Can you maybe talk just briefly on the risks that those remote VPN connections can create? Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about our remote VPN connections, I mean, I, I talked about credential theft. So in the event that you have your username and password stolen, and if people can try to remotely access via VPN, um, you know, having just a username and password set up can definitely leave your organization vulnerable. Thanks. So let's talk about with this rush for remote workers, which we've all seen, right? This this came on us rather rapidly, and a lot of organizations had to move in a manner far beyond the pace they would normally choose to or would prefer to in enabling their workforce to re- work from home. And with haste always comes mistakes. So I'm curious what some common mistakes or common pitfalls that you've observed as companies have tried to make this transition in such a rapid manner. Naladri, we'll start with you. Thanks, Ron. So a couple of things that I've seen uh, so far, uh, one of them has been that there's been such a focus on getting everybody connected and getting everybody access to the resources that security has kind of become a bit of an afterthought as a bolt-on, right? So, and, and it becomes quite difficult then to reincorporate security into what you've already done, given the fact, you know, everybody isn't in the same place. It's difficult to communicate changes. So it's very important, uh, uh, obviously, to make sure that security is part of the equation as you're talking about remote access, as an example. And I would say also, you know, some of the things that I've seen a lot of our folks out in, in the field, they're not necessarily, you know, designing for scalability uh, and, and kind of taking pause. They're, you know, back to the lottery's point, we're just trying to get up and running without taking pause and thinking about it long term. You know, you don't have to shoot the moon and overcomplicate things. I usually try to take a crawl, walk, run approach when it comes to security. I mean, in the long run, it'll help you quite a bit. I mean, not not everyone's mature enough um, at stage one to implement a full security program, and you don't want to get caught by um, paralysis by analysis either. Thanks, guys. Good points. I think, you know, a a summary of this, what we've seen, and it's perfectly understandable, is that there was such a rush and so much pressure to get organizations remote enabled as quickly as they could that security was really an afterthought. Um, Look, we, we get it. We understand how it happens. But I think that's a great opportunity to switch our conversation to now that you are up and running, you've got the connectivity, how can we help you start to think about security? So um, let's start focusing on the solution rather than the problem. And let's start with the connection itself, right? So you're no longer sitting in that corporate office. You're, You're working from home. Maybe you have a VPN connection. Maybe it's just a straight internet connection to the cloud. Uh, to utilize SaaS applications. Let's talk about how you secure that actual connection. And Corey, let's start with you. Yeah, and actually one really low-hanging fruit way uh, that we've seen has been through DNS security. Uh, I mean, DNS, obviously, you know, access to domain, uh, uh, 
the domain name service. So basically, when you're trying to call out and go to a specific website for whatever reason, you know, a lot of them are, are new websites that have come up uh, recently to act uh, maliciously. So I think that, you know, what we try to do is put in a layered approach to stop at the DNS layer. Um, there, there's a bunch of free options as well as corporate options. I, I think the one, a couple that come to mind myself are uh, OpenDNS or Cisco Umbrella. You know, it's a free service for the home user, but it's also from a corporate perspective, there's a lot of tools and things that you can turn on there uh, in, in order to allow folks to access the internet resources securely and not be uh, tricked into going to a, a bad um, website there. Yeah, Corey, that, that's great feedback. And it, it is really useful. Obviously, we'd love it if you never clicked on a malicious link in the first place. But certainly, if we, can't, if we don't resolve that name because you did click on, you know, we have toilet paper and stock.com, uh, it can certainly help to protect you. I think it's worth noting, too, that in the unfortunate event you should be compromised with malware, DNS security can also help protect you, particularly in ransomware, other types that have a callback function where the malware calls home effectively asking for directions. It can also, in many cases, help block that call as well. So another reason that's important. Um, Naladri, what are some other areas that you can add context on around this idea of securing that actual connection now that you're a home user? Sure. So the first question in my mind always is when somebody is connecting in, let's say Corey is connecting in, is it really Corey that's connecting in? That's, all, that's always out there, right? Given the fact that credentials can be purchased on the dark web you know, quite easily these days, and uh, everybody is trying to go after uh, you know, static passwords, right? And unfortunately, it's very difficult to essentially confirm that, oh, that is absolutely Corey connecting in. Oh, it's definitely the, the, Corey connecting in. Trust me. <laughs> so here's, um, you know, one good way to do it is to use multi-factor authentication. Um, you may hear the term MFA. You may hear the term 2FA. You may hear the term adaptive MFA. But essentially, the idea here is to have something and to know something to put those two things together to get access. So going along with the example, Corey would have a password or a PIN, and Corey would also have a, a randomly generated, a pseudo-randomly generated number, right? And he would plug both of those in, and boom. He would uh, he would get access to the multi-factor using multi-factor auth to a remote access. In that way, we know for a fact that it, you know it's Corey because if Corey lost that device that gave him that code, that's fine because you still can't use it just to connect in. Even if I'm connecting from Russia. Well, now you bring up an important point about adaptive the adaptive part of the adaptive MFA. But do uh, you want to cover it here? Or should we cover it a little bit later? No, you can go ahead and cover it now in the laundry. That's fine. Great. So, um, Corey mentioned, um, by the way, I did not know you were in Russia lately, Corey. But um, I, I ping pong around quite a bit, actually. So, here's something odd that I saw, speaking about you ping ponging around. When you were connecting in, right, and, and of course, I'm, I'm using a scenario here. Um, when you were connecting in, the first time I saw that you were connecting in from the West Coast. Um, of the U.S., and then all of a sudden, a few hours later, 
I saw you connecting in from Russia. Now, I know you're quick, but hey, you know, come on. So point here is that th that's impossible. There's no way that, uh, uh, you know, you, Corey could have actually, you know, traveled that quickly. So in a scenario like that, you will want to look at a MFA solution that is aware of the context, in this case, the physical location of the person, and adapt accordingly to provide access. In this case, obviously, the point being, we know Corey's on the West Coast, then the connection from, uh, you know, Russia ought to be denied. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to Russia nowadays. But... Unless Corey, nothing against Russia, and of course, you're visiting Russia. Lovely place. No, well said. All right. So uh, it's, a, it's a great point, Russia comments notwithstanding. Um, th this idea of adaptive MFA really brings in this, this concept of context, which is so key, right? So they were, uh, you're getting a little flavor for that. And the idea being not only why validate in a much more secure fashion who you are through the multiple credential approach, but I can also look at where you are using the example um, Laudrin Corey gave. And I can even look at things what you are. What, what do I mean by that? So what browser am I using? Is it the current version uh, that's patched or am I running an older outdated browser that has known vulnerabilities and I'm not going to allow you access until you go back and patch it? So it really adds this concept of concept context, which is so interesting. There's even, and I've used this one a couple times, it's absurd, but it actually makes sense. When you look at, at geolocation, and that's what the guys were talking about around Russia, one example might be for my most secure applications in the normal environment, I might say you have to be in the corporate network. If you're sitting in a coffee shop, if you're working from home, particularly if you're out of the country, I'm not going to allow you access. Well, think about the world we're in now. Nobody's in the corporate network. We're all working from home. So as absurd as this would normally be, you might want a MFA context policy that says, if you're on the corporate network, deny access because either A, you're an employee violating shelter at home restrictions and that's not safe for you. I don't want to enable you to do things that are unsafe for your personal health. Or B, there shouldn't be anyone in that network. That means you probably broke in, patched into my network or compromised the Wi-Fi and you most certainly shouldn't be logging in with those credentials you've stolen. So again, yeah, it would be absurd under normal conditions to do that, but uh, this whole situation's a bit absurd. So there you go. So so let's pull this into some real world scenarios, right? We've had some some fun with some maybe impractical ones, but let's make this real. So you're working at home. Maybe you're not used to doing that, right? Maybe this is a first time for you. You typically have a desktop computer at work. You have applications that sit on that desktop, and your work is limited to the time that you're in the office sitting in your cubicle. But now you're at home, maybe on a work laptop. Maybe because you had that desktop, you're using your own personal PC. Maybe you're using an iPad or a Chromebook, and you're trying to get your, your work done. So let's play this out in very real-world, non-theoretical uh, scenario, what can you do? How can you protect yourself in that environment? Naladri, can you go first? Sure. So in today's world, um, I think you would likely agree most of the applications that we consume for work and also personal applications are provided from the cloud, right? And 
the, the challenge is that uh, when, when employees are sitting in a corporate network, there are some additional controls in place, either the perimeter of the network, right, uh, or even on the corporate desktop that makes sure that there's appropriate access um, to the cloud and, and, and to the data in the cloud. But what happens when you're at home and you're trying to access those exact same, uh, uh, you know, the data. So as an example, let's say you're you're getting into either a Salesforce or you're getting into um, uh, Office 365, right? So one of the key things is because you no longer have those perimeters, you know, in people's homes, you still have to protect that connection and that, you know, that, that work that's happening, right? And the best way to do that is to use a solution that's called CASB, the acronym is CASB. It stands for Cloud Access Security Broker, right? Sounds fancy. But the net net of it is that there's two things to be careful about the cloud, or rather to take into account about the cloud. The first is secure the actual instance of the cloud, right? Because Microsoft will secure their portion, but the data within my, you know, your instance of Microsoft O365 is your responsibility, right? So the first thing you have to do is make sure you secure your instance. The second piece is to make sure you secure the data in your instance. Well, I, I, I know I didn't come up with this, uh, but uh, you know, the way I've heard it said is security of the cloud and security in the cloud. Point being, both of those items need to be accounted for when working with SaaS-based applications uh, in the cloud from home or from really anywhere. So um, just to give you another quick example here, what do you mean by security of the cloud? So an example would be what policies have you put in place for your users in the cloud um, Let's say you, you don't have the appropriate policies, uh, which prevents somebody to, uh, you know, leave a wide open S3 bucket. Well, that's going to be a problem. And we hear about these all the time, right? So that would be an example of securing uh, the security of the cloud to have, to, to have some policies in place which are enforceable regardless of which device is accessing it and where it's being accessed from to make sure that somebody can't just leave an S3 bucket full of data with no security on it. Um, on the other end, remember I mentioned security in the cloud, right? An example there might be, um, Let's say somebody has a Excel output of some uh, sales data. That's fairly sensitive, right? And uh, the, the last thing you would want is for somebody to share that out with the world, you know, either on purpose or uh, most likely without even realizing that they're doing that, right? So the point there being all of our users have a legitimate need to collaborate with people within the organization and outside the organization. And data flows in and out all the time. So stopping the flow of data is not an option, obviously. So we all have to be able to identify what data is in our SaaS-based services, as an example, which ones are the important bits of data, and to make sure that either by accident or out of malice, that data can't be moved 
copied, sent, what have you, uh, to to uh, somebody uh, uh, you know, inappropriately. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, Corey, is there anything else you want to add? Again, this is from a you know, practical scenario, working at home. How do we protect ourselves in this environment? And I think we touched on it earlier, but I think a very important component is multi-factor authentication, putting that in front of your uh, really sensitive and protected assets. You don't need to enable multi-factor authentication for everything, so to speak. Uh, it, I mean, obviously, you want the functionality and to enable the folks from to work remote, but you know, obviously, it's just low-hanging fruit here. Leveraging multi-factor authentication for your critical assets—it's uh, it, easy to institute. Thanks. So let's close out. We've talked a lot about technologies that that really are applicable at a corporate IT level, right? Um, some of the DNS was for home user, but if I'm sitting at home, right, I'm not going to spin up Casby. I don't have the rights to determine whether a critical business application uses multi-factor authentication or not only the IT department can do that. So let's bring this a little bit more personal for our users who are really just looking at this from the perspective of, I want to protect myself. Of course, I want my company to be protected. But what can I, as just a regular user who doesn't have any admin rights, um, isn't part of the IT team, what can I personally do to make myself safer, uh, both working remotely, but even just in general. And Corey, I'll start with you. Sure. So I actually have a real life scenario. And, and my answer to that is low hanging fruit is password managers. This is something that you can quickly set up and institute to allow you to be more secure. I mean, the problem that a lot of folks face is that there's password reuse. And, you know, when, when we talk about password reuse, there, there's a website that I go to that I've checked out in the past is called haveibeenpwned.com. And really, if there's any type of password dump or any type of breach that's happened, they'll list a lot of these out there. And you can cross-reference your email address or your login credentials with that to determine, hey, may maybe my password is living out there on the dark web some somewhere. And a common thing, like I mentioned, was password reuse. I've been guilty of it myself in the past where, you know, I've had the same password for many different websites that I log into. Well, what's a malicious threat actor going to do if they have your credentials? They're going to try and go to some of the common websites, to the banking sites, et cetera, to try and, you know, see if they can log in with your credentials. So having a password manager, I think really helps you from a hygiene perspective to think, all right, well, I don't have to know what my password really is. I have to remember a single password to log into my password manager. And by the way, when I sign up for accounts or when I generate a new password, what'll happen is it will, you know, I will put in the most uh, randomly generated password with all different complexities and lengths that it allows me to do. And then after that, you know, it's, it's hard to guess and to do a dictionary attack against your username and password. Um, also, another thing, too, is many of these password managers have built-in uh, multi-factor authentication uh, capability as well. So you can actually um, enroll in multi-factor authentication and use the same password managers. A couple examples I like to use, I, I know that you know, Ron, you've been a fan of uh, LastPass. I personally uh, use uh, OnePass or uh, OnePassword. Uh, if you want to do it open source and run your own, you could do something like KeyPass or Passbolt. 
So there's many different solutions out there. It depends on what you want to, um, you know, what do you want to share? Uh, and, and the reason that I bring this up or a story that I have is my father recently touched base with me last week. He was actually the victim of password credential theft, very low hanging fruit, easy to do password managers. It's going to really improve your security posture. Yeah, thanks. I, I, uh, I was, I was strongly second that, as you mentioned, I, you know, I use them myself. Um, it really helps against one of the most dangerous things, and we all have done it, many still do, which is that password reuse. And for the, exactly the reason Corey mentioned, um, because once you crack a password to one site, they know there's an incredibly high chance that you've used that same username and password on other sites. With a password manager, you, know, you create passwords, you would never remember them, and that's actually the point. Um, I have no idea what my password is to most applications that I use because they're incredibly long, complex, and they're buried encrypted in a password manager, um, but that's the only way I can even get it. So uh, great recommendation. Now, Andre, what about some other thoughts as an individual that you can do to protect yourself? Well, as an individual, um, actually, uh, I'll relate a story here recently that happened. Um, uh, my family, my wife's family, we we're all spread out over uh, over the U.S. and, and other parts of the world, and uh, a lot of our, our family, uh, similar to a lot of other families, have elderly members that we are concerned about, that we want to keep in touch with, that we want to talk to, and that time is often very difficult for a lot of families to uh, uh, set aside and to make sure uh, that uh, they can they can talk to each other and, and be uh, you know provide some comfort. Um, unfortunately, uh, what has been happening as of late is uh, a, a lot of folks are creating these video conferences, by the way, to do that, which is awesome, but they aren't securing it with a password. It's a very, again, common theme, right? Password. And my point here is when we only have a certain amount of time to have some meaningful and important interactions, especially now, the, you can do a very small thing to make sure somebody doesn't or cannot disrupt that time with your family. And that's simply to put a password on your Zoom conferencing, your WebEx conferencing, or whatever you're using. So just, just a really simple one. Thanks, guys. Great advice. So as we wrap up, a little summary. This, uh, this is not actually the normal format, so uh, you know, apologize for that. It's a little bit more rapid fire, a little bit more chaotic than we would normally have, where, again, our focus is to really pick a single topic and dive a little bit deeper and more thoroughly into it. But there's just so much happening um, that even though we started planning for this podcast series back in September of last year, uh, I just didn't know how we could not speak about remote worker security, given the environment we're in right now. So. Rest assured, our subsequent episodes will be a little bit more focused around a single topic. And again, our approach will be to really dissect that topic, help you understand it, uh, even more importantly, understand the practical implications from it. One topic that we will hit that we're actually doing today without specifically calling it out, you've likely heard this term zero trust. It's really quite a, a popular term in security right now. And while we didn't have time to talk about how the concepts we discussed today align with zero trust, many of them actually do. So in a future episode, one of the things we're going to cover is specifically, what is zero trust? We've all heard about it, but what is it really? And how do I take a practical application of zero trust? Because zero trust taken to its literal extreme 
is extremely difficult, if not borderline impossible to implement, but there's many practical ways you can do it. So that's one topic we're going to cover. Uh, some other ideas that we have uh, based on folks we've just you know solicited for input, uh, PKI or asymmetric cryptography and digital certificates, kind of a compliance 101 just around various compliance and regulatory measures, uh, a whole episode just on ransomware, one on email security, identity and access management, and as I mentioned, zero trust. But what we'd really like to, to close how I started is your feedback. So please send us your suggestions, your commentary. What did you like? What can we do better? What topics you'd like to hear at simplysecure at us.logicalis.com. So really appreciate you listening to our inaugural episode. On behalf of Naladri Dada, Corey Kramer, and Logicalis, I'm Ron Temsky, and thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Simply Secure, a Logicalis Insights podcast. For more information about the solutions we have discussed or to become a guest on an upcoming podcast, please contact us at simplysecure at us.logicalis.com.